3 today. We're just going to spend just a brief moment in Matthew chapter 9. Then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 23. We're talking about being Christianized or being converted. Being Christianized or being converted. There's a difference. There's a lot of people who live Christianized lives. They appear to be Christians. They confess to be Christians. It doesn't even matter whether they go to church or not. A lot of people just say, oh, I'm a Christian. But they really don't have a clue what that word or what that term means. <clears throat> well, that's one thing for people you know, in the world to have that mindset or that misconception. But it's quite another thing for the church to enable people to live in that mode of thinking or to even reinforce or encourage those things. And so here in Matthew 9, Matthew chapter 9, let's, let's read starting in verse 9. And I'm going to read to you these verses, these just short number of verses that chronicle the the call of Matthew and the conversion of Matthew. His name was Levi. He was a tax collector and he became an apostle, one of the 12 apostles. And the Lord Jesus changed his name from Levi to Matthew. And so it says in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, something that's interesting to me, if you read in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5, verses 37 through um, 30, I think maybe 27 through, somewhere right in there, Luke gives the same account of, the, of Matthew's calling. But Luke says there was a man named Levi. And at the time Jesus called him, that was his name, Levi the tax collector. So Luke, who's giving the, this his gospel and the, the account of what happened, gives a very accurate picture historically of this man named Levi who was called by Jesus to become a follower. He got up and followed all, and then later on he became Matthew. What I think is interesting here is in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is the one writing this gospel. And I think it's interesting the way Matthew identifies himself. He doesn't say there was a man named Levi. He said there was a man named Matthew. And what that says to me, I think, is really something that we should all take to heart. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where he says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Or in his letter to the Romans, where Paul says, Reckon yourself dead. Or in Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Matthew is communicating that. If you, will, if you will look deeper than just his words here, there was a man named Matthew. If you'll understand what Matthew is saying about himself, Matthew understood that Levi died. The old man Levi, the old tax collector, the old sinner, the old publican that everyone hated, that was despised, that man died. The man that no one except sinners and other publicans wanted to have anything to do with the, the Christians or the religious people of the day, the righteous people of the day, didn't want to have anything to do with this man. But here comes Jesus in two very simple words, follow me. And Levi the tax collector gets up and he follows Jesus and he becomes Matthew the apostle. And Matthew the Apostle is writing this gospel. And you see, by even referring to himself as there was a man named Matthew, he has reckoned himself dead. The old is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. Levi is crucified with Christ. I have been raised a new creation. I even have a new 
identity. Do you realize that when you were born again, when you were crucified with Christ and raised with Christ, do you understand that you were raised with a new identity? Do you see yourself as having a new identity or are you still living who you were? Do you still define yourself by the sin and the sinfulness of your old life in your old man? Or do you now see yourself and identify yourself in Christ? A new man raised a new creation with a new identity. That's who we are in Christ. So Matthew, he says, saw a man named Matthew at the tax office and he said, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Matthew doesn't include this in his gospel either, but Luke does. Luke says that Matthew invited Jesus to his house and threw a feast, threw a party for him. Matthew doesn't give us that detail. Perhaps because Matthew was being humble in his account. I don't know. Matthew just says, you know what? He called me. I got up. I followed. He's in my house eating with tax collectors and sinners. Many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Christianity is not about convincing people to believe in something. Christianity is being converted to belief, to faith by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit of God. God chooses, listen, God chooses to use men converted from darkness to light, as vessels that he will work through to affect the conversion of other men from darkness to light. Jesus Christ is not physically walking the earth today, but his body is. We are the body of Christ. Jesus has called us, he has made us vessels to affect the conversion of men from darkness to light, just like we came from darkness to light. Not by convincing them to believe in a religion or to believe in something, but that our life, our life, not just our words, but our very life would communicate something powerful. I once was darkness, but now I am light. I was Levi, the sinner and the publican, but now I am Matthew, the apostle. I was this, but behold, all things have become new. The old has passed away, and I am in Christ, a new creation with a new identity. Do you understand that that's what's happened to you if you have truly been born again? If you have truly been converted from darkness to light. So God chooses men converted from darkness to light as vessels he works through to affect the conversion of other men from darkness to light. And that happens as we walk as children of light. Paul the apostle writes to the Ephesians, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, walk, walk as children of light. So here in this account that Matthew gives us of his conversion, and this is what it is. This is when Matthew experienced conversion from darkness to light. One day, he's just working in the tax office, and here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew follows him, and before you know it, Matthew is converted from darkness to light. He becomes an apostle. He becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ. The old is passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he writes this gospel, he writes this account as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And he records for us the very day that that conversion took place by the power of God. 
we see four elements in Matthew's conversion or in his, this calling of Matthew by Jesus that we should take note of. We see that there is the call of Christ to sinners. The call of Christ to sinners is this, follow me. Why? Why must we follow Jesus? Because Jesus is not a way, Jesus is the way. He didn't say, follow me if you want to, follow me if you don't have a better way. He said, follow me, period, follow me. Why? Because I am the way. There is the call of Christ to sinners. Don't be afraid to call sinners to Christ. Don't be afraid to tell people that Christ is the way. They need to know that. They need to know it in love, but they need to know it in truth. The call of Christ to sinners, follow me. We see the community with sinners. What did Jesus do? He calls Matthew. Matthew invites him to his house, and guess what? Jesus responds to the invitation. He came to that house, and with many tax collectors and sinners, he sat down, the Bible says. He sat down with many tax collectors and sinners. So we see the call of Christ to sinners. We see the community Christ had with sinners. How are sinners going to know about Jesus? If we don't have community with them. Because they're not going to break the doors down to get into this church. Or any other church. Regardless of what we might think. We, we might attract some disgruntled Christians to our church. But we're, we're not going to attract very few, if any, sinners. The sinners are out in the world doing what sinners do, doing what worldly people do. This is why Jesus did not say, listen to me, Jesus did not say, sit and wait for the sinners to come to you and make disciples of them. He said, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Why? Because the world is where the sinners are. If you're in the church, and I'm not talking about being in this building, I'm talking about are you the church? If you're the church, you're a saint. You're not a sinner any longer. Sainthood is not based on how wonderful works you've done and then somebody says, oh, you've earned sainthood, boom. No, the Bible says if you are in Christ, the Bible repeatedly calls you saints. Not, not because you did some good work, but because you have trusted in the only good work that's ever been done, that is the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. So Jesus says, saints... Go, therefore, to the world. I give you the authority to go. So we see, along with the call of Christ to sinners, there is a community. There is a communion that takes place. The community that Christ had with sinners. That's how Matthew came to be. That's how all of these men came to be. They were all sinners. Christ went to them and he said, follow me. He said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Are we fishers of men? Is the church today full of fishers of men or are we just full of critics? We're like a bunch of, we're like a bunch of food critics or entertainment critics. We come and we sit and we critique. And then we go and we write our criticisms. That's not what Christians are called to be. We're called to be fishers of men. We're called to the world. We are commissioned to go to the world with the call of Christ, the call that says, follow me. To have community with those who are in the world who are lost and blind and dying. And as Jesus is having community with the tax collectors and the sinners, guess who's outside? 
We have the call of Christ to sinners. We have his community with sinners. We have the complaint of the comfortable. Why does your teacher, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know that that's not what we do? We're Christians. Well, they weren't. They were Pharisees. The complaint of the comfortable. Those Pharisees were very comfortable in their religion. And when they saw Jesus in community with sinners, they began to complain. Luke calls it a complaint. Luke 5.30. It says the Pharisees began to complain to his disciples because Jesus was in community with these sinners. <clears throat> and you might get some complaints if you will be bold enough and brave enough to step out there and have community with sinners for the purpose of seeing them converted, not Christianized, but converted. It's not your job to go out there and change their lives. Only God can change a life. But we are commanded to go and to love them, to teach them, not just with our words like the Pharisees did, but with our example, the way Jesus did. So you have the call of Christ to sinners, you have the community with sinners, you have the complaint of the comfortable. And here's the response of Jesus to the complainers. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. There was no one more sick than the Pharisees. Jesus wasn't saying, you Pharisees aren't sick, you guys are righteous, you don't need me. What he was saying is, you guys are, you guys are, are dead and decaying. And you, you need me more than, than anyone needs me, but you can't see your need. You think you're well. You think you're not sick. So I didn't come for you because you don't see yourself as sick. You don't think you need me. I'm not here for you guys. I'm here for these guys because they understand their sickness. They understand their need. And the righteousness of the Pharisees was not true righteousness. It was self righteousness. And a self-righteous person doesn't see their need for righteousness because they think they already have it. Jesus said, don't worry, I didn't come for you guys. I came for sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. We see the fourth element here. We see the conversion of sinners. The conversion of sinners into disciples. The conversion of sinners into disciples. The Bible doesn't tell us how many people in that house that day ultimately became disciples of Jesus. But I would be willing to bet that there was a number of them. Who before it was all said and done, repented of their sinfulness and turned to Christ and became disciples of Christ. We know that there weren't many Pharisees who did that. There were some. But it was the same people standing outside of Matthew's house complaining that Jesus was fellowshipping with sinners. Those were the same people who stirred up the crowd to cry on that day, crucify him, crucify him. So the call of Christ to sinners, the community of sinners, the complaint of the comfortable the conversion of sinners into disciples. Jesus called sinners to repentance. He entered into community with the unrighteous to the complaints of the self-righteous. And he converted sinners into disciples. The conversion of sinners into disciples of Jesus Christ. Listen, church. This is the power of God. The conversion of sinners into disciples. The conversion of darkness into light. This is the power of God. This is the power of the gospel. Where is the power? Where is it? The church cannot be content with Christianizing people and Christianizing our culture. Well, if we could only get the right guy in the White House, if we could only get the right 
party in power? No. If we could just change a few laws, nope. Doesn't matter. If we could just get everyone to put little fishes on the back of their cars and Christian bumper stickers in their windows, nope. Who cares about that? That means absolutely nothing if your heart has not been converted from darkness to light. The church cannot be content with Christianizing people in the culture. The church must seek the conversion of men's hearts. What are you praying for when you pray for the church? Are you praying for the church? Here's what Jesus said. Pray the Lord of the harvest send laborers into the field. He didn't say, pray the Lord of the harvest to send more people into the building. That's, that's the trap we fall into. Do I wish this building was full? Absolutely, I do. But you know what our prayer should be? It should not be, Lord, fill our buildings up. The prayer better be, Lord, send laborers into the field. We've got it wrong. We've got it backwards. And we better learn the right way. We've got to, church. We've got to. The cry of the church should be, Lord, send laborers into the field. And along with that cry and along with that prayer, there should be a conviction that touches our heart, that pricks our heart, because I must be one of those laborers going into the field. I must be. You don't have to go far. I'm not talking about you going to Africa or South America or Mexico. Just walk next door. Walk across the street. Walk to the next cubicle. We live in a mission field. It's all around us. Don't try to win disgruntled Christians and convince them to come from their church to your church. Don't do that. Because you know what? If they're that disgruntled and they come here, all they're going to do is bring their disgruntledness here. And quite frankly... I don't want it, and you don't want it, and God doesn't want it. What they need to do, what we all need to do, is learn to be content. There's enough sinners out in the world who don't know Christ. We don't need to worry about other Christians. Well, you'd like our music better if you'd come over here. Well, you'd like the preaching better here if you... No, don't do that. That is sin. That's sin, church. Don't commit that sin. Go to the world. Go to the sinners. Go to the people that are hurting and dying and lost and don't even realize it. Because they don't know Jesus. Go be a friend to a sinner. Listen to what they have to say. Love them where they are. Speak the truth in love to them. Let the gospel shine through your life, the way you walk and the way you talk. Make that your prayer. Seek that power. Pray and seek that God would use you as a vessel that would affect conversion in the life of someone who's in darkness. Very simply, this is what the scripture commands us to do. This is our commission. This is your purpose. Don't look for some, what's my purpose? That is your purpose. That's why you exist. And in order for you to make disciples, you got to become a disciple. And maybe the first order of business is for you to begin to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let God use you right where you are. Right where you are. Let's go to Matthew 23. <clears throat> 
Matthew 23. We're going to go through um, 15 verses here. I know that sounds like a lot, but we're going to go through them kind of quick. Matthew 23, 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, Do you, do you see the, the, the difference? God distinguishes. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and his disciples. Jesus understood that as he spoke, there were two groups of people out there. There were his disciples and there was the multitude. He spoke to both. We're not called just to speak to Christians. We're called to speak to all men. We speak to both, just like Jesus did. And here's what he said. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Now, that's a pretty amazing statement right there because Jesus railed against the Pharisees. He was merciless against the Pharisees. Here you got the woman caught in adultery and Jesus basically rescues her, says he who is without sin cast the first stone. But yet to the Pharisees, if we read this entire chapter, you'll see that Jesus uses pretty strong language. He calls them snakes, vipers. I mean, he, he, is, he doesn't pull any punches with these guys. But yet, here's, listen here to what he tells his disciples in the multitudes. The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Though they were wicked and corrupt, they had a place of authority ordained by God. They were lawyers. They were men who taught the law, who taught the scripture. And he says, listen to what they say. Observe what they say. Whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not, listen, do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. Now let's, let's bring that to our modern day world. How many of you have ever had a family member, a friend, an acquaintance say, you know, I would go to church, but church is full of hypocrites and that's why I don't go. I mean, every one of us has had someone say that, right? I've said it myself. I used to take pride, and that's why I didn't go to church, because church is full of hypocrites. So why should I go to church? A bunch of hypocrites. They're out there getting drunk on the weekend just like I am. The only difference is I'm, I'm, I know what I am. I'm not in church on Sunday pretending like I'm. That is such a cop-out. <laughs> that is so wrong. That is not a reason to disobey God, to rebel against God. Here is Jesus. How do we know? Because here's Jesus saying it right here. The Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. Do what they tell you to do. Observe what they tell you to deserve, but don't do what they do. Because they say one thing and do another. In other words, you're accountable to the word of God, regardless of who's delivering it. And woe be to that person who, I mean, Jesus told him, woe to you Pharisees. As a matter of fact, we'll see later on, he says, you're going you're gonna to receive greater condemnation. Why? Because of your place of authority. So the multitudes and the disciples were not released from what the Pharisees said in terms of what they, in, in the word of God. But they were going to come under greater condemnation because not only did they know the word of God, not only were they proclaiming the word of God, but they were not doing what they were saying. They were hypocrites. But the fact that they were hypocrites did not release anyone from being held accountable to the word of God. Amen? So he says, don't, Don't do like they do, for they say and they do not do. Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their little fingers. Here they're loading people down with all these things, but they won't even touch the very thing that they're loading all these people down with. 
But all their works, verse 5, all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. Phylacteries were these little things. They would have the scripture on parchment. They'd roll it up and they would bind it on their forehead. They'd bind it on their forearms. And inside were these scriptures where God commanded them to do this. And they'd make bigger and bigger phylacteries. It had to be a very comical sight. I mean, it would be so foreign for us today to see someone walking down the street with this big old you know, leather case strapped to their head and these things strapped to their forearms and inside are these little parchment things. I mean, it would look ridiculous for us today, but these guys did it because they thought it was... I mean, they just make it bigger and bigger and bigger because it's kind of like, you know, I drive a bigger car than you do, you know. I've got a much more expensive, fancier car than you, and I drive that car around with great pride. You ever, you ever seen people like that? I mean, they're, they can't provide for their family. We see people like this at Shepherd's Heart. You know, I've carried out countless bags of groceries to people that are coming there for, for food, but, but they're driving a brand-new Cadillac. And I'm like, how can you afford to drive this thing? I, I can't even afford a Cadillac, you know? But, but that's, that's the way the Pharisees were. They were absolutely, totally bankrupt spiritually, but... They're doing all these things that made them look so great. And they'd make the borders of their garments even broader. You know, it just everything's just they were like a big flashing advertisement that says, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous. And Jesus is saying, Don't be like these guys. Don't do that. They love, verse 6, they love the best places at the feast. They love the best seats in the synagogues. They're the guys that have the big, cushy, throne-looking chairs up here on the platform, and they sit there, and they look at everybody. They, like, they have the best seats. They love greetings in the marketplace and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you, verse 8, but you, you do not, do not be like these Pharisees. But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. What's, it's kind of interesting, that term rabbi, this, this title that they gave to these teachers, really came about. It was, not, it was something that really became very popular in Jesus' day. It was uh, from the time of Herod the Great, there were two rabbi, two schools of rabbis, Hillel and this other guy named Shimei, and they were like opposing rabbinical schools. It's like these two famous seminaries, and you know, you had a group that wanted to go to this one seminary, and a group that wanted to go to this other, and the one group was saying that we've got the corner on the truth, and this other was like, no, we've got the corner on the truth. It was out of, it was out of these two rabbinic schools that this term rabbi really became popular when they started ascribing this title to, to these men, the Sanhedrin and the, the Pharisees and these sects. And so this became really popular and they, they wore it as a, as a, you know, kind of like a badge of honor. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Why? Because it was self-exaltation. It was self-importance. It was self-aggrandizement. They loved to be called rabbi out in the marketplace because it said something about themselves. And they, they loved to have that attention. Jesus said to his disciples, don't do that. Don't be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, or one is your master. And you are all brethren Listen, I'm standing up here today on this elevated platform behind this little podium. But in God's eyes, I'm not above you. We are brethren. I, I might have the title pastor. That's a calling that God's put on my life. But that doesn't mean that I'm above you because I'm your pastor. I have a different position. I have a different responsibility. I have an authority. 
That's a calling and an office that God gives to men. doesn't come from men, it comes from God. But that doesn't mean that, that I'm above you. We're brethren. We are all members of the body of Christ. We all have one head, Jesus Christ. But that wasn't the attitude of these Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, hey, this was what the world was seeing. This is, this is what men like Matthew, the tax collectors and the sinners and the publicans, they're looking at these rabbis and it's like, you guys, you know, you, you, you exclude us. Not, not that they would even want to be a part of it, but even if they did, there was this exclusion because we are the rabbis the rabbin. We have this exalted position and you guys are just tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is telling his disciples, that's that's not the way the kingdom works. Don't call anyone on earth your father. In the Sanhedrin, there was a position called the the Ab, A-B, the Ab, short for Abba. Abba means father. The Ab was a position in the Sanhedrin. He was next. He was one rung down from the president of the Sanhedrin. Jesus is saying, don't call anyone on earth your father. It doesn't mean, kids, you can't call your dad father. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about a position that man created as an exalted place of authority and importance, and and they were superseding the authority of God. They were doing things that were contrary. They had a position given by God. They have an authority given by God, but they were abusing that authority. Hence, Jesus said, listen to what they say, observe what they say in terms of the law and the scripture, but don't do as they do because they say and they don't do themselves. He's saying to his disciples and to the multitude, don't be like that. Don't say and then not do yourself. Or at least if you do, recognize the wrong in that and repent. These guys were so blinded by their self-righteousness, they couldn't see the wrong in what they were doing. They were deceived. Verse 10 And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is great among you. Here's here's where Jesus brings it. Here's the point of what he's saying. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. Don't take these titles and these things and exalt yourself and have an appearance of greatness Because you've got a title. True greatness, Jesus said, comes from being a servant. You want to be great in the kingdom? Become a servant. You want to be first, the greatest of all? Become the servant of all, is what Jesus says in Mark's gospel. True greatness comes from a servant's heart. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm going to read that again. Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. The most important thing is how God sees us, how God views us, what God knows about us. Not what men say about us. Not what title we have. Not what position we've given ourselves or what seat we've taken for ourselves. Now, what's, what's most important when it all comes down to everything, God will sort all of that out. He will. And if we'll trust God and we will humble ourselves, He will in due time exalt us. And when that day comes, it's not, it's not that we're going to want to be exalted or that we're even seeking exaltation. Because the more we're able to see Christ, listen church, 
The more clearly we're able to see Christ, the more humbling it becomes. The more clearly I am able to see Christ, the more clearly I am able to see my sinfulness. And that doesn't make me feel exalted. That actually is quite humbling. But out of that place of humility, God knows how to lift us up. See, humility is not... Humility, don't don't mistake humility with, you know being depressed and down and, and down on yourself. That's not humility. That's condemnation. Condemnation would be very humbling. But the humility that God wants us to have is not a self-condemning humility. It's not a self-judging humility where I'm trying to do penance. and It's just recognizing the reality of who we are in light of who God is. It's humbling. And, and when we come to see who we are in light of who God is, what it should do is cause us to cry out to God for his mercy and his grace and humble ourselves before him and say, God, I don't understand why you saved me, but I'm so thankful you did. And out of that sense of godly humility, true humility, God, God, God will lift us up. He's our encouragement. He's our strength. Amen. So he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you start, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. It was said that the, the rabbin, this, you had these levels, they would they, they had a symbolic key that they would give to this person who had attained to great knowledge of the law and the scriptures. And he'd have this symbolic key indicating that he, he had the key of wisdom and knowledge. And I don't know if Jesus is alluding to this here or not, but he says, you shut up, you don't go in yourself and you shut it up so that no one else can go in. It makes me think of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 19, when he, after he gets through saying to Peter, you upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the same authority that Jesus is referring to in the beginning of Matthew 23 when he says that the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. What they say, do. What they observe, tell you to observe, you observe that. Why? Because they were sitting in the seat of authority. They had the key. Jesus says to his disciples, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall, or in heaven shall be bound on earth. Jesus, I know in our you know, charismatic tradition, we like to think that that's you know, dealing with demons and spiritual warfare. Listen, there is power and authority there, but what Jesus really is talking about here to his disciples is I'm giving you guys authority to write the gospel. This, the key is the gospel. Who cares if we get people delivered from demons and healed from sickness, but their soul is never saved and they go to hell? What have you done for them? And don't you think that the devil can't heal people and the devil can't do miracles because he does. There are lying signs and wonders. Read the book, The Beautiful Side of Evil. Now, what is true power is the power to save men's souls. And this is the power that Jesus has given to his church. This is the key that Jesus has given to his church. It's called the gospel. Now, in the preaching of the gospel, listen, is there healing are there demons cast? Absolutely. Read the end of Mark's gospel. These signs will follow those who believe. But the point are not the signs. The point is the gospel. The real power is not whether this body is healed physically or not. The real power is, have I been taken from darkness to light? Is my soul saved? If I gain the whole world and live to be 250 years old and die in perfect health but go to hell, what have I gained? Nothing. Where is the real power? There is no power. There was an appearance of power, but there was no real power.
power there because it couldn't carry me beyond the temporal into the eternal. So he says, you guys have the key. You don't even go in yourselves, and you certainly don't let others go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. For you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. We're all brethren, but because I have the calling of pastor on my life, I understand that I run the risk of greater condemnation, greater judgment because of what has been entrusted. That doesn't give anyone a pass. But this is what Jesus is saying to these guys. You guys have been entrusted with the key to eternal life. You've got the scriptures. You know the scriptures. You teach and preach the scriptures, but you are a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even do what you're telling the people to do. You will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you. This is why James says, let not many of you desire to be teachers because you will receive a more strict judgment. Some of y'all think I'm uncompromising on certain things. That's why I'm uncompromising on certain things. In that day, Jesus isn't going to say, well, you know, you should have compromised because you know the culture was... No, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the culture does. This goes right to the point of what we're talking about today. We're not called to Christianize. We're called to make converts. We're called to make converts. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were here in the next verse. Here's where we end. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Look, three woes here. Woe, you have, the, you have the entrance. You've got the key to the kingdom. You won't go in. You won't let anyone else go in. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you make a pretense. You do all of these things. You're devouring widows' houses, making a pretense of righteousness, making everything look really good on the outside, but you're corrupt. Woe to you. You will receive greater condemnation. Here's the third woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That proselyte wasn't converted. There was no conversion there. What they did is they Christianized him, if I can use that term. They just made him a bunch of, they just turned him into legalistic Pharisees like they were. And they said, look, wear the robes, wear the phylacteries, say the long prayers, sit in the right seat, have the right title, wear the right clothes, use the right language, go the right places, play the part, become like us. Not only did they become like him, but Jesus said, now you've made him twice the son of hell as you are yourself. This was my point last week when I said, we're content with the homosexuals as long as they stay in the closet, right? Why are we? They're just as lost in the closet as they are kissing each other in the Chick-fil-A restaurant. But we somehow get all upset because they're kissing each other in the Chick-fil-A restaurant, but as long as they stay in the closet, we don't really care about them. Or how about abortion? As long as it stays in the back alley and I don't know about all the abortions that take place, I don't really think much about it. Or whatever other sin you want to name. As long as everything has an appearance of godliness, as long as everything looks like it's nice and Christianized, are we happy? Oh, they pray. They pray. The Senate prays. The Congress prays. They open up every morning with prayer. Really? I wonder what good that's doing. Oh, but God forbid, don't take that prayer away. Because if we ever took that prayer away, then our Congress might go to hell. I got news for you. It's already gone to hell. They pray every day, and it has not made one bit of difference. You know why? Because that prayer is nothing more than appearance of godliness. We're happy about that prayer because it, it just shows we're, we're, we're a Christian nation still because our Congress still prays. Really? So did the Pharisees. 
They prayed a lot longer prayers. No. So let's go back to where I started. We looked at Jesus walking down and he looks at a man and he says, follow me. And the next thing you know, he's in that man's house eating supper with him and his friends who are all a bunch of sinners and publicans. You got the self-righteous people outside who are all worried about whether we have an appearance of godliness or not. Well, Jesus, that doesn't appear very godly, eating with those sinners. But at the end of the day, that man became a disciple. He actually was converted. The Pharisees went halfway across the world to win a proselyte, and he became twice the son of hell that they were. Why? Because one was the influence of man, and one was the power of God. Church, we cannot settle for less than the power of God. And we better turn our prayers the right direction and quit praying for God to send people to our churches and pray that God would send us to the world. I mean, a lot of Christians do good just to get to church on Sunday morning. How are we going to win the world? How are we going to reach the lost? Our focus becomes making it to to this place or whatever other place Making it to a church building for two hours on Sunday morning becomes the great exercise of of the church in America. As long as I make it to that building on Sunday morning, I'm good to go. Do we really think that that's going to save our nation? Do we really think that's going to change our culture? Do we really wonder why America is just on the downhill slide and it's going faster and faster and faster? And the fact that it is, is, I believe, the grace of God. I think God's just letting it all fall apart. It's a good thing. I know you guys might not believe that, but it's really a good thing. Because the longer we live in this illusion that everything is okay, because we still fly the flag and we still say the prayer before the Congress starts, uh, as long as we keep living in that illusion, we are dying and we don't know it. Let's go ahead and realize we're sick and we need a Savior. But let's go to the word of God, to the cure that God has given to us. Not the cure that the world says, not the cure that the worldly church says. Let's go to the scripture and find the cure. And the cure is the gospel. And the gospel doesn't say sit and wait. The gospel says go therefore. The gospel doesn't say be content with an appearance of godliness that has no power says, seek God. Preach the gospel that is the power. Go in the power and the authority that Jesus has been given. Go in that power. Go in that authority. And be the gospel to the people all around you. You know what? When you, when I become the gospel to the people around us, before you know it, they're going to be coming to church with you. How many of you ask? How many of you just ask, hey, invite someone? It could be as simple as that. Just take the time to have a conversation with somebody. Ask them about their life. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology. Don't, don't carry your Bible when you go have a conversation with somebody. Just go have a conversation with them. Let Christ in you come out. Let the love of Christ come out. And you know what? If you'll begin to do that consistently with people before you know it, God God will do something in their lives. And, And whether you realize it or not, God is doing something in your life. Christian is not a label that we obtain because of the traditions we adopt. Christian is who we become through the power of God. The good works of the church and the good works of men cannot atone for the lack of power we have become content with. You hear me? 
The good works of the church and the good works of men cannot atone for the lack of power we have become content with. This isn't about you going out there and doing more good works in the name of God. There's enough good works done in the name of God. I'm talking about something real. I'm talking about reaching into people's lives, being available for people. Not just going and doing something and calling it good. The church's lack of power is glaringly obvious in the hearts of the unconverted being led astray by a church who has made herself comfortable believing she is doing the work of God because she has the appearance of godliness. Mm -mm. That's like the Pharisees with their broad borders and their big phylacteries. It's empty. Jesus said, woe, you Pharisees. But we better listen because he may be saying, woe, church, if we do not return to the gospel, if we do not return to the power of God. If we do not begin to desperately pray that God would use us to go and make a difference. I challenge you to pray that God would send laborers and that you would count yourself as one of those laborers that he would send out into his harvest field. I challenge you to pray and ask God just to show you one person. And you begin to pray for that person. You begin to reach out to that person. You begin to look for opportunities And let God use you as a vessel, a vessel of his power. That we wouldn't get hung up about how many are coming here. What we ought to really be hung up about is how many that are not going there. See, we're all hung up on how many who are not coming here. God ain't worried about that. What God's saying is, no, you got it backwards. You're worried about who's not coming here. What we should be worried about is who is not going there. We are called to go and make disciples. And you and I need to ask myself, before I make a disciple, what kind of disciple am I? And you're not going to be discipled apart from the Word of God. You're not going to be discipled apart from making yourself available for God to speak to you through His Word, for you to interact with other believers, to build yourself up with one with another in the Word of God in prayer. This is why our fellowship is so important. This is why our coming together is so important. Because it directly affects how we're able to go. And I would also challenge you to not be content with that which just looks good, feels good, seems good. But look and seek and examine whether there is really power there to affect a conversion from darkness to light. Amen. Let's all stand. Lord, challenge our hearts. We are your church. And we have gotten so many things backwards. Help us, God, to set things in the right place, to put things in the order that you have shown us in your word. Deliver us, God, from things and mindsets we have become accustomed to. Lord, break those things. Shatter those things. Cause us to conform to your scripture, to your word.
Help us to see, God, that we are a people that have been given authority to go in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to preach a gospel that is the key to eternal life, that is the very power of God unto salvation. Lord, help us come to a place that the wonder of that truth, the wonder of that reality would return to us. Forgive us, God, for taking for granted such wonderful things that you have given to us in Christ and making them common. Forgive us, Lord, for being like Pharisees. And Lord, as we humble ourselves, Lord, that you would be exalted, that your name would be exalted, that your gospel would be exalted, that men, Lord, men would truly be saved. Use us, Lord. Make us salt. Make us light. Use us, God, in this earth. To your glory, we ask this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.